This morning we'll be reading from 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're talking about the fear uh, as we are moving through this series the, um, uh, on fear. Uh, we are talking about the fear of economic failure. And certainly in our climate in the world today, not just in the United States, but in the world, there is a fear that multiple market collapses could create a colossal economic failure. Perhaps some of you don't think about that. You just think of your own economic woes, your own personal family finances, and that brings you to a place of wondering how you're going to make ends meet or how you're going to get through the crisis that you may be going through right now. And the question is, does Scripture speak to the fear Does Scripture speak to the fear that is associated with finances as it is a legitimate fear? Does Scripture speak to that? And the answer is yes. Paul is instructing Timothy here in 1 Timothy. He is instructing him about different groups in the church. You see, Timothy is a young pastor who needs Paul to speak to him. He needs the mentoring of Paul. He needs this wisdom and instruction because he has found himself in this pretty significant city called Ephesus. And his job is to pastor the church at Ephesus. And as he is there to pastor this church at Ephesus, uh, Timothy needs some help. So Paul instructs him with the groups of old and young and how to deal with old and young people together and how they should get along. Paul helps Timothy uh, with a second group, a group of elders, meaning leaders in the church. How ought they to lead and what kind of people ought they to be? Paul helps Timothy to know how to deal with widows. How should you deal with widows in the church and then slaves? Paul says this is how slaves ought to be treated as they existed in that culture. And finally, right at the end of his letter, it almost seems inserted. It, it looks like it ought to come earlier, really, in chapter two or chapter six, verse two, probably inserted there. Paul says this is how to deal and, and lead rich people. And so it is in that treatment that we discover how to avoid and deal with the fear that accompanies financial worry. Let's define the term rich because that's hard to do and we'll define it in terms of the entire world to begin with. Rich is a term that is, must be seen in context. If you look at the entire world, all of us are rich. All of us in this room, because so much of the world lives on less than $2 a day. And so if you uh, are in this room, then compared to the whole world, you're rich. Regardless of your circumstances in here, you're rich. 
Let's take that in McDowell County. One of the poorer counties in western North Carolina is this one, McDowell County. The average median income in this county for a two-income household, so mom, dad working together, is $39,000. If you and your husband, you and your wife together earn more than $39,000, then you have more money than the average family in McDowell County. Let's take it then in context of this church. Some of you earn more than others do here. You come into this place and God has blessed you either through your profession or through some investments you've made or through a career or through some some smart decisions that you've made or through an inheritance, whatever it may be, and you earn more than other folks in here. You would be considered to be rich or perhaps even wealthy. So the message is for all of us then, isn't it? It's for every person in the room. As for the rich, is every person in here because relatively we are. What ought we to do? Paul gives three principles. I I would call them investment, sound investing principles. He says, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Investment strategy number one, hope in God, not money. That's what Paul says, hope in God, not money. He says, do not be haughty, which means to be High-minded, some of your translations may render it. To be high-minded, what does that mean? Don't let your money go to your head. You could say it that way. Don't let your money go to your head. Money goes to people's heads, I've discovered, in two different ways. There are those people who get money, and it goes and burns a hole in their pocket. And so all that's in their head is, When can I go and where can I spend it? When can I go and where can I spend it? Money's gone to their heads, but it's going to go right out of their pockets as soon as they get a chance. Then there are others who get money and it uh, is, is stored away somewhere. They just can't wait to get to the bank and invest it or get to their broker and have it invested. And they read the, the investment reports constantly. Paul is saying either way, wherever you may find yourself on the spending, saving spectrum, don't let money go to your heads. Do not be high-minded. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. How are riches uncertain? They're uncertain, I say, also in a couple of ways. Number one, money comes and goes. It does. You may have quite a bit of money, but find yourself in a circumstance where you have to spend a lot of money on a health-related issue, and all of a sudden it goes. You may have an investment that seemed sound, and you were advised on it, and it doesn't pan out like you thought. You may invest in a, a business, and all of a sudden, all the circumstances, everything goes south, and your business is lost, and you lose everything. But there's a second, more subtle uncertainty that accompanies money. There is the illusion that money satisfies. Isn't there? 
There is this illusion, this feeling that if I could get just a little bit more, money will satisfy me. It will buy me this or it will get me this privilege or I'll have this kind of power. If I could just get a little bit more money, there is this illusion that money satisfies and it doesn't. That is the uncertainty of riches. Money doesn't satisfy. Ran across this week the story of Sam Polk. Sam Polk did an uh, op-ed in the New York Times in, uh, on January of this year. This is what he writes. In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted, he says. He had read a book, and he graduated Columbia University. He was a wrestler there at Columbia, became addicted to alcohol, and his senior year got clean, landed a job with Bank of America at the age of 22. He said, when I walked onto that trading floor for the first time and saw the glowing flat screen TVs, high-tech computer monitors, and phone turrets with enough dials, knobs, and buttons to make it seem like the cockpit of a fighter plane. I knew exactly what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It looked as if the traders were playing a video game inside a spaceship. If you won this video game, you became what I most wanted to be, rich. He says, at the end of my first year, I was thrilled to receive a $40,000 bonus. For the first time in my life, I could write a check without looking to see how much money I had in the bank. He says, but just a week later, a trader who was only four years my senior got hired away for $900,000. After my initial envious shock, his haul was 22 times the size of my bonus. I grew excited at how much money I could make. He says, just four years after I started at Bank of America, Citibank offered me $1.75 million to come and join them a year. I used it, took the offer to get the promotion. He says, I felt so important. At 25, I could go to any restaurant in Manhattan. All I had to do was just drop the word to my broker. Or if I wanted to go see a Knicks-Lakers game and sit on the second row, all I had to do was drop a subtle hint and my broker would take care of it for me. Still, I was nagged by envy. On a trading desk, everyone sits together from interns to managing directors. When the guy next to you makes $10 million, one or $2 million doesn't look so sweet. My counselor didn't share my elation. She said I might be using money the same way I'd use drugs and alcohol to make myself feel powerful. He says, now working elbow to elbow with billionaires, I was a giant fireball of greed. I wanted a billion dollars. It's staggering to think that in the course of five years, I'd gone from being thrilled at my first bonus, which was 40000 to being disappointed when my second year at the hedge fund, I was paid only one and a half million dollars he says ever seen what a drug addict is like when he's used up his junk he'll do anything walk 20 miles in the snow rob a grandma to get a fix wall street was like that for me despite my realizations it was incredibly difficult to leave he says listen to the language 
Listen to the language. 30 years old, making multiple millions a year plus millions in bonuses. I was terrified of running out of money and foregoing future bonuses. More than anything, I was afraid that five or ten years down the road, I'd feel like an idiot for walking away from my one chance to be really important. What made it harder was that people thought I was crazy for thinking about leaving. In 2010, in a final final display of my withering addiction, I demanded $8 million instead of 3.6. My bosses said they'd raise my bonus if I agreed to stay several more years. Instead, I walked away. He says, I recently got an email from a hedge fund trader who said that though he was making millions every year, he felt trapped and empty but couldn't summon the courage to leave. He says, I believe there are others out there. Maybe we can form a group and confront our addiction together. And then he makes this practical suggestion that they'll take 25% of their bonuses, throw them into a fund to help people. Whether it's one million or one thousand, it is so easy for us to hope in money, isn't it? It's so easy for us to hope in hope in money, put our expectations in dollars and cents. Paul gives the strategy for investment, which tends, which has the uh, the the tendency to help us to avoid the fear of not having enough, hope in God, not money. Secondly, invest God's money, not yours. Look at the very next verse. Or the same verse at the end of it. On the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Then verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You have four ways of saying the same thing. To do good, to be rich in good works, which is a a play on words, to be generous and ready to share. This phrase, ready to share, is a fascinating word in the original language. It's where we get our word fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Well, in Baptist life, for many years, fellowship has mean get together and do what? Eat. Yeah, several of you said it. In Baptist life, if you're going to fellowship, you got to have some food, right? Which makes me sick thinking about it right now. But... But you're going to get together and you're going to eat. Not so. Not so. The word means to share with one another. To share your life with somebody else. To share with one another. And so when Paul writes here, be ready to share, Paul is saying that you see a need and you're ready to meet the need. That's why we do lunch bunch in this county. Six years ago, I was driving around and gas prices had gone up tremendously. My wife was working at Old Fort in the cafeteria. She was coming home telling me about children who literally would come in line on a Monday morning. And she said it was obvious they were so hungry on that Monday morning coming through that breakfast line, they couldn't wait to get food. And so, so what happened? Like God just put this burden on me that somehow we've got to make sure in the summertime those kids get something to eat. And all of a sudden, churches all over the county seem to share that burden. And God has so blessed that through the years. Be ready to share. I think of two years ago when Sarah Syak 
called our offices and she said, I was driving down the road this morning and I saw this woman. She was walking down the road with her McDonald's uniform on. Sarah, who's a young mom, said, I pulled over and spoke to her and, and, and said, where are you going? And she said, well, I'm walking to work. Where do you live? She told Sarah where she lived. This woman walked almost an hour to work every day. Sarah said, why don't you have a car? And the story unfolded. And, and by Sunday, I was up here telling you this woman's story. And by the end of that week, you had bought her a car. And so she had this car, this nothing fancy, just a car. Sarah went and took this car to her, and she was absolutely thrilled to simply have transportation, eager, ready to share. That's what uh, Paul says. Now, you say, but Jerry, I, I struggle to let go of my money. Well, part of your problem could be your thinking it isn't yours. It's God's. Notice what he says here. He says, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That word enjoy is a fascinating word that's used there. And some of you, frankly, are going to find it offensive. The word literally means sensual enjoyment. What is Paul, what is the point he's making to use such a bold word in such a sentence? Means that God can so provide you with everything you need so as to equal the sensual enjoyment you would have with your husband or with your wife. Money can satisfy at this level, God, at this level. That's what Paul is saying. God so richly provides you everything. And so whatever you gave today in the offering, it wasn't yours to give, was it? No, it was God's. It was his to give. You gave his money today. Those of you who've spent time serving him already, it wasn't your time. God has appointed your time to you. And so you simply took some of the time he has given you and you gave it away today. Whatever talent you have wasn't yours. It's, it's one that God gave you, and you simply took that talent, or you are taking that talent and giving it back to him. And when you view it that way, your worries will start to subside. Chip Ingram tells the story in a little book he wrote called The Genius of Generosity. Chip was a young pastor in Dallas, Texas area, out in uh, away from Dallas, Texas. And he said, this guy by the name of John Seville. John Seville contacted him, and, and John was a member of his church of about 30 people. And John said, I want you to drive into downtown Dallas, and we're going to go eat. And thankfully, John told Chip to dress decent. Chip was young, didn't have any money, said his car didn't even have air conditioning. And so he goes driving into Dallas, Texas, finds this large, tall building that belongs to John Seville, and he ascends up the, the elevator and meets John. John was an accountant. He owned this large accounting firm, and God had richly blessed him. 
And he was a member of that tiny church that Chip pastored of about 30 people. And so John said, let's go to lunch. And they went to lunch, Chip says, at this great restaurant. He said, I had never seen food like that on a menu before. I had never ordered from a menu like that. And John kept nudging me saying, you need to get this. Try this. It's really good. And it was the most expensive thing on the menu. And I just kind of felt bad even eating that kind of food. But I did. And John was right. Chip said it was good, really good. He said, then John looked at me and he said, Chip, you're out there in the country all the time and you see poor people all the time and God's richly blessed me and I care about those people. He said, so, and he reached into his suit and pulled out a checkbook. He said, so I've got a checkbook here. I've signed all the checks in it. He said, up here in the left-hand corner, he, or right-hand corner of the ledger, he wrote $5,000. Wherever you think it's needed, spend it. And Chip said, I thought, are you kidding? What am I going to do? He said, I walked out of there, another checkbook in my back pocket that belonged to John Seville. He said, then I would, I would see a need and I would think, I've got the money to help meet that need. And the very next thought that would go through my mind was, well, what would John think about that? And I'd try to get in John's head and try to figure out, is this how John would spend his money? And he said, then I would meet that need. And then I'd see another need. And I would say, well, I wonder if John would want me to meet that need. And so I would try to figure out what John thought about that. And I would meet that need. And, and he said, I just went through and... And, and John said, uh, John Seville said, listen, once you've spent it, you let me know. Chip incidentally said he had never even balanced a checkbook before. He had to learn that. He said, so I spent the money. And John said, let's do lunch again. And we went to lunch. And he said, I'll tell John stories. And in the middle of that nice restaurant, John didn't care. He'd say, praise the Lord, to where everybody in the restaurant could hear. He said, it would just kind of shock me. And then he'd take a, that checkbook from me and he'd write another amount up there. And he'd go sign the checks. And he'd say, do it again. I'd go again. Chip said it was through that experience that I learned what God said when he says, I don't own anything. The whole time I was thinking, the whole time, what would John do? And that's how God's money is. When you give, do you know what should be going through your mind? God, what would you do with this money? When you get your paycheck, God, what would you do with this? When you see a need, God, how would you spend it? Why? Because it's his. He simply signed the check for you. He's given you the health to work. He's given you the strength to work. He's given you the intellectual ability to work. Every good thing given, Scripture says, comes from above. Amen? Everything you have is his. And if it all belongs to him, you're investing his money, not yours. And if it fails, guess what? He's still got plenty, amen? You're not the only bank account he uses. Some of you are going, whoo, that's a relief. 
You're not the only one he's tapped into. You're not the only person he's blessed. He's blessed so many people. Thirdly, invest in the future age, not the present age. Notice this benefit, verse 19. All right, so you do good. You're rich in good works. You're generous and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Invest in the future age, not the present age. You say, well, Jerry, does that mean I should be a spendthrift? No, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that all you're investing now must have a future outlook. How so? Some of you know this, some of you don't, but let me share. Something happened to me between 6th and 7th grade. All right, I've been a nerd all my life, so that didn't happen between then and then. But between 6th and 7th grade, somehow college got on my brain. And when college got on my brain, that's all I could think about. I just could think about going to college. I knew I wanted to go to college, and I knew my mom and dad just could not afford it. They didn't have money. So between 6th and 7th grade, I started working for my dad, who was a rock mason, and I would work for dad carrying rocks and mixing cement. We called it mud, mixing mud. I worked for dad. I mean, some of the kind of work that we did, uh, Dad did a job. He was six months on Lake Tahoma. Nelson Parker's house did all of this rock work. And I remember showing up and in the heat of the summer working. And what got me through the heat of the summer and working was this, I get to go to college. I'm serious. It was, I get to go to college. I would take every dime. I went to BB&T in Old Ford at the time. I opened up a bank account. Every single dime I made, I put in the bank account except for my tithe. Even as a seventh grader, I knew I had to tithe. And so I put that in there, and I keep everything else, and, and, and I put everything in the bank and keep my tithe, spend nothing on myself, absolutely nothing. I remember, I think I was in eighth grade, we were working uh, across the mountain at Black Mountain Golf Course uh, on someone's house, and it was a, a rock retaining wall, tall rock retaining wall, and there wasn't enough room to get the truck with the rocks or the cement mixer up the hill. And literally, I tied a rope around my waist, connected it to the wheelbarrow. And my brother would push the wheelbarrow, and I would pull the wheelbarrow up the hill. And then we would switch, either loaded with cement or loaded with rocks. Why would I do that? I was going to college. Believe it or not, going up that hill as an eighth grader, I would think, college, you get to go to college. You get to go to college. And somehow... Those rocks didn't seem near as heavy. Got a job at Frisbee's in Old Fort. Then I got a job at Stuckey's on the interstate. And I know it is hilarious, but by the time I was a junior in college, I was the assistant manager. Stuckey's on the interstate. I was. I was making 200 bucks a week as a junior in high school. Banking everything I could bank. Why? So I could go to college. I worked 40 hours a week as a high school senior. Why? Took all honors classes. I did my research. It's before the days of internet. Went to mom and dad and said, listen, I've done my research. I know kind of where your tax bracket is. And if you'll drop me out, you got three other children. It's not going to affect your tax bracket. Drop me out. I could be on financial aid by myself. I'll get the maximum amount of financial aid. My parents looked at me like, you're an idiot. But they did it. And so when they did, drop me out. And here I am. Why? Just 
I just wanted to go to college. That's all I could think. I did not go on any senior trip, which was cruises in those days. Didn't do those. Didn't go to the prom. Why? Cost money. And then I financed people's ways who did. They would come to me, and they knew I had money, and, 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 and I would finance them with interest. I'm not lying. Why? So I could go to college. All I wanted to do was go to college. It made all of that worth it when I wrote that first check. I remember still to this day writing that first check to Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina for $3,300 and some dollars out of my bank account for my part of my first year. It felt so good. Why? For six years, all I thought about was what? College. And that helped me pull rocks up a hill, mix cement, work at Frisbee's, work at Stucky's. That's what Paul is saying here. Please hear me. Please hear me. Everybody looking this way. Here's our problem. We are so earthly minded, we have no clue about investing in eternity. What if we lived here and we thought, heaven, eternity. Oh, God, you've given me this. What in the world will I do with my time so that it's maximized until I see you, Jesus? How will I use my money so that it's maximized? Jesus, I am working hard, and, uh, you know, these, these seventh and eighth graders are getting on my nerves, but Jesus... This money, this time, this talent, it's yours. Paul says here, you store up for yourselves a foundation in heaven. What might that foundation look like? Graham Daniel's testimony, he talked about that kids club, that Christian club. Our church sponsors one of those and there are eight schools in the county that does it. It costs about $1,000 a year to do it in one of the schools. Um, our missions team supports one of those. We sponsor it completely so that when you tithe, you give to a Graham Daniels come into Christ. You didn't know that, did you? This morning in the early service, Troy and Trudy Cathy uh, uh, sat... Um, right, uh, or Harper, sat right where Mike and Alicia Rowland are sitting. They have just returned from Central Asia. They, they live in so much danger on the field. Perhaps you didn't know they can't even celebrate any success they may have, but since our church sponsors them to go Every time you give, oh, investment in the future that somebody in Central Asia may come to Christ. Where's Garrett Grindstaff? Is he here this morning? Don't see him. He's not? Okay. Garrett Grindstaff just came on staff here as an intern this summer. Madeline Davis, who was in the early service, just came on staff as an intern. Do you know what they're doing this summer? Madeline's working with Josh. Garrett is uh, 
leading backyard Bible clubs all over the county. How is that possible? Well, a generous donor gave the money to pay for their internships a couple years ago. And then we get a call from Ridgecrest from Megan. And Megan works with Infuge. And Infuge is having hundreds of kids come from all over the country to Ridgecrest. And they're coming to do camp and to do mission work. So this summer, we're still putting the schedule together. When you see it, it's going to blow your mind. We've got five different neighborhoods in this county and five or six different camps here at this church for children and 600 teenagers from all over the country who are going to descend on McDowell County this summer. Isn't that awesome? How did that start? A a donor family giving money for an internship that allows us, the personnel, to manage 600 people coming into this county. What Paul says that you do is you lay up for yourselves a good foundation for the future so that you can what? Really start to live. (laughs) Here it is. Generous giving is real living. That's what Paul says. Generous giving is real living. You want to enjoy life? Every week when you get your paycheck, say, okay, God, here goes. This is what you've given me. Now tell me what to do with it. Oh, you've got your bills to pay, and you've got your responsibilities, and you must take care of them. But with the margin, what happens with the margin? You say, Jerry, there's no margin. Then start to take care of that problem. What happens with the margin? How do you give outside of that? That's when you take uh, hold of, you grab on to what what, uh, is really life. That's when you grab on to real living. That's when, you, when, you, when you're holding on and God is doing these marvelous things and you're just part of it and you may get no credit for it at all and nobody may ever, ever see it. But wow, the joy you have in the middle of it is incredible. That's what Paul says. You said, Jerry, what should I do now? Let me give you two or three practical steps. Number one, if you've never tithed, meaning giving a percentage, then do that. Some of you can start easily with 10%, but if you say, Jerry, I have debt and these other things, then start with some percentage. Do you know what tithing does? It builds a margin into your life. It just builds a financial margin in. And when you tithe, you say, well, I can live only on 90%, and that's good. Secondly, beyond that, as you go through your week, conversations with God that say, all right, God, best I can tell, I got 20 bucks this week. It doesn't have to be 20,000. I think we've kind of gotten confused about that. I've got 20 bucks this week. 
how would you want me to use that? And listen. Just listen. And whatever he says to do, do it. Just simple, simple generosity. We're not talking about colossal, earth-shattering, life-changing things. Some of you can do that, and if you can, it needs to be 20000 But for most of us, it isn't. Then listen. It could be an expenditure of time because you're in a place in your life where you have more time than money. Some people are there. And so you show up and you do something that someone cannot do for themselves. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, had this to say. It was in the early 80s and their business was in trouble financially. They couldn't quite get their, their hands on how to turn it around and they were deeply concerned. So they called a senior staff retreat. They met in the mountains, I think, of Georgia. And they met for two or three days with their senior leadership. And they said, what are we going to do? And they came out of that weekend with a simple statement. And Kathy said, when we carried this back to our leadership, our middle managers, they looked at us and said, you've got to be kidding. You were gone three days And you came up with that? He said the ones who didn't say it were thinking it because here's what they came up with. And I quote, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. To have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. That was it. There was no elaborate strategy. This over- arching principle, value statement that stuck. And God used it tremendously. I want to end by reminding you of the irony of this whole sermon. And here it is that God doesn't need you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't need your money. He owns the earth and everything that is in it. Your money won't buy your salvation. It couldn't even put a percentage of a down payment on it. Why? God in heaven who owns everything would ask me to partner with him in giving is astounding. It's directly connected to his MO. His MO is to give. He gave ultimately his son, Jesus Christ, And if you are going to receive Christ, guess what? There's nothing you'll bring to the table either. You'll just bring yourself desperately in need of Christ. Desperately wanting Christ 
and you'll receive him. Not because you're rich, not because you're good looking, not because you're talented, not because you're dressed well, but because you need him. You recognize you need him and you say, God, I desperately need you. You bring nothing then when you bring your gifts, be they a hundred, a thousand, or a million. The monetary value of them matters little. It is the God who gave his son Jesus Christ who invites you to join him in that relationship who also invites you to join him as a partner in giving. It's amazing that we get to sit at that table and be part of that process. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these people. I pray that they will go having this tucked in their minds and hearts. I pray that they will, uh, for some of them, have a rock in their shoe. They, they have walked into this place with this fear of losing their job or losing their income, only to be reminded today that it is yours. I pray that you would remind them that you who own everything love them. Father, I pray for those who have come into this place this morning and they realize, they recognize that they need you desperately, that their lives have unraveled and they've become a mess. I pray that they would see that desperate need that they have for you and receive you, Jesus, as their Savior. That they would see a giving God who ultimately gave his son, Jesus Christ. And they would receive you, Jesus, like Graham did and like Sherry Logan did. And so many others have and will. And then there are those who, like Sam Polk, are afflicted by greed. They hoard or they spend, but they don't give. Show them the vast expanse between their life now and real living. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We're going to go. Uh, before we do...